Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, my guest is Fleet Mall, a criminal justice reformer and integralist who is doing amazing work and who has an amazing story. I've known Fleet since the early 2000s when he and I were both at Naropa University, which is the Buddhist university here in Boulder, founded by the Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chugam Trumpa. I was a student in the Masters of Divinity program, and Fleet was on the Naropa faculty. And I remember how powerful Fleet was as a teacher in this contemplative tradition, and how beautifully he transmitted that elegant precision, that spaciousness, that I so identify with the Trumpa tradition. And Fleet was also a bit of a rock star because of his amazing backstory. It turns out that Fleet had served 14 years in prison for drug trafficking. He had been a student of Trumpa's at the time. And to us, he was a living exemplar of one of the core teachings of Trumpa, which is that the unwanted material of your life is your portal to transformation. And that certainly was true of Fleet and for countless others because of his work while behind bars and since. And he started as a meditation teacher in prison and founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute and the Prison Hospice Association, whose work continues to this day. And Fleet has just released a new book. It's called Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good, where he transmits the teachings of his decades of work with himself, of course, but also with the countless people who are, um, you know, the lowest of the low uh, in in our prisons and and has done such good and continues to. I caught up with Fleet yesterday as he took a break from an in-depth training program that he and his team are doing in Ottawa, Canada for law enforcement and corrections officers. We start our conversation with Fleet describing his thinking on prison reform. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I'm still very, very involved in prison work, it's a huge part of my life. In fact, now it's not really even just prison work, it's the whole criminal justice system and working with public safety professionals. But one of the reasons I'm so dedicated to it is that my prison time ended up being uh, a really, I mean, a tough journey, but a really incredibly transformative journey for me. But I was very fortunate. I came into prison with a lot of skills, a lot of background. I already had a master's degree in contemplative psychotherapy from Naropa University. I did I had a lot of training. I had been trained as a meditation teacher for 10 years already. And, and you know, that begs the question, why was I such a knucklehead to end up in prison? But suffice it to say, I was caught up in a lot of stuff from the 60s going forward. And I hadn't managed to untangle it yet. And so I, and I kept this whole secret life going and, uh, and uh, it caught up with me, and I was trying to extricate myself from it, but before I managed to do that, I got indicted. And so, anyway, I earned my way into a, a 14-year federal prison sabbatical of sorts. <laughs> and uh, it was a tough time, but but it was a really incredibly powerful 
journey for me. It really turned my life around from the minute I got locked up because what really initially hit me was that my son was nine years old and he was going to grow up without a dad now. And facing what I'd done to him and all the incredibly selfish decisions I'd made along the way, I just became radically motivated to get rid of all the negativity in my life and try to do something with my time to leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or even his dad died in prison because I had no surety that I would survive my prison time. And and initially, I thought I was going to serve 30 years. So because um, uh, I was sentenced to 30 years, no parole. Later on appeal, after my, I took my appeal about three years to go through the courts, they knocked off one count, which reduced the aggregate sentence to 25. But also by that time, I had learned that with the good time that you got under the old sentencing laws, I would have done 18 and a half on 30 and then 14 and a half on 25 if I stayed out of trouble. Well, unfortunately, for people sentenced since 87, they get very little good time anymore. But I was fortunate that back then you got a lot of good time for that they could take away from you if you get in trouble. But if you managed to stay out of trouble, you had that. So at any rate, you know, I just really wanted to to do something to serve. And, and you know, I had the example of Trunk Rimshe, who for me was a, a human being who just 24-7 lived in service of humanity. It's all he cared about was bringing awakening to humanity and and uh, so here I was, you know, somehow I'd conspired with, you know, the world to get myself into this place. And uh, and it was was very much a hell realm. And so how could I show up and serve? So so I really became dedicated to a life of practice and service. And uh, and that just naturally continued when I got out. And, and because I'd been in that world long enough, you know, all the people I was in prison with, a lot of whom, you know, were not fun to be in prison with, but nonetheless, they became my brothers, you know, and, and so really anybody that's incarcerated in the world, I really feel a kinship with and, and feel an obligation to bring, uh, bring the work back and, and benefit others. Because like I said, I came in with a lot of skills. For most people, prison just makes them worse. It, people come out of prison, you know, broken and bitter and more angry and, and more dysfunctional often. And, and I, I was lucky. It, it, it transformed me. But, you know, I came in with the resources to do that. So that's one of the reasons I'm dedicated to bringing it back. And actually, I'm really excited these days that most of my personal work, even though our organizations are very involved in bringing the work to prisoners, uh, both at risk, incarcerated and reentering um, adults and youth. Uh, but my personal work is a lot working with correctional officers, probation parole officers, police, other law enforcement these days. And, and for me, it's, uh, I feel that's another way to give back because I really, you know, there was, of course, times as a prisoner that I wasn't so happy about the way the guards acted, but you know, they're human beings, they're all human beings, and it's just a place of suffering. And, and I really see that the way to transform it is to get arms around it and get some healthy skills into the whole world. Yeah. And, and also those guards for, for better or worse, they helped keep me alive for 14 years so I could do yeah. my work. Yeah. Well, you, you talk about, Looking at, you know, your work around prisons and radical responsibility in general as an approach to personal and social transformation from an integral perspective. Mm -hmm. So how would you contextualize what you're doing? What, what's going on here evolutionarily? What's next? It seems I, I would also say that there's a lot of attention to prison reform these days mm -hmm. and is are things moving? You know, what do you what, what do you see there? Well, you know, I think that really began with the economic collapse in 2008. The prison industrial complex had just been growing unchecked and uh, prison building boom all over the country and, and the, sur the uh, surging uh, growth of the private corrections industry. And, you know, uh, 
criminal justice becoming an $80 billion self-perpetuating industry, you know? So, um, but then the state started running out of money. The state started going bankrupt. And, and that really was the, the kind of party was over. And uh, states had to start backtracking. They realized they couldn't just keep building prisons. And uh, so it, it kind of took the steam away from some of the lobbyists that were driving in that industry. A lot of the private corrections industry started focusing in the global south. Unfortunately, just like, you know, when, they, when the cigarette industry couldn't sell cigarettes in the U.S. anymore, they're, they're selling them everywhere else in the world, the tobacco industry. So similar with the private corrections industry. So, um, you know, that created a real opening and a real shift. And we started to see, uh, you know, signs in the Obama administration of interest in criminal justice reform. We also started seeing signs on both sides of the aisle that there was a, re a realization that that this system was broken, that it was unsustainable. You know, from the right, maybe they see it. In fact, I remember an article. I, I won't be able to remember the name, but there was a, a law professor from Texas somewhere, uh, long haired, you know, probably baby boomer law professor from uh, Texas somewhere who strong criminal justice reform advocate. And he had hooked up with some Tea Party uh, folks and uh, and they were both they, they found an alignment of, of issues there because for the Tea Party folks, the, the criminal justice system and especially our prison system was just another big government boondoggle. Right. And uh, and spending money and unsustainable. So, you know, that kind of evolved to where a lot of interest on both the right and the left. There's been some major foundations. Uh, the Koch brothers uh, foundations have been involved with some uh, more progressive right. foundations. And and so there seems to be this broad bipartisan interest in criminal justice reform for different reasons. On one side, it's often more for humanitarian reasons. On another side, often more for economic reasons. But I think there is a shared humanitarian interest on both sides and a realization that, you know, when Eric Holder uh, pronounced that, uh, that mass incarceration is not only uh, an economic failure and a policy failure, but it's a complete moral failure. And I think I think that really uh, struck a chord with a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I think there's unfortunately, you know, with the uh, with the Trump administration, that's gone backwards a little bit. But then he turned around and signed on to some criminal justice reform. So who knows? Maybe maybe Trump will well, be didn't, you know, didn't, the hero. Didn't. Kim, Card reform. Kim Kardashian help him along or something. Yeah, it's some 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 weird thing, you know. But uh, who knows, you know? Yeah, but whatever. We'll we'll take the gain. Yeah. Uh, so and, yeah, recently, uh, uh, there's a, a new uh, 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 NGO of some kind got started. Jay Z and another uh, well-known rapper. I'm not that up on the latest. I didn't recognize the other guy's name, but a lot of people do, and probably think I'm you know really old and clueless for not recognizing the other name, but I know who Jay-Z is. I'm not that clueless. And uh, at any rate, they don't, they and others donated $50 million to a new NGO and, and recruited uh, Van Jones to be its CEO that's going to be involved in criminal justice reform and focusing a lot on, on uh, probation and parole issues and the way people are just set up to be in cycles of failure through the way the probation and parole system is structured in many places. Yeah, interesting. I think the other rapper is Meek Mill. You're right. You're who is right. going to name? A lot of people know about Meek Mill. I don't, but I don't. <laughs> a lot of people do. Yeah, and I just really dated myself. But you know, I, I think there is that that interest, and in, and I, but I really do think it, it just it, it economically ran out of gas. The prison industrial complex. That's what I think created the shift. Thank goodness, because you know, prior to that. In the work we're doing, uh, you know, we always knew we were doing great work. Uh, I mean, great work. We're doing good work and bringing a lot of transformation to a lot of people. 
Um, and but it really felt like lighting candles in the darkness because it really seemed like the whole criminal justice system and prison industrial complex and so forth was just kind of getting darker and darker, really, for many years. And very much felt like pushing a big boulder up a very steep hill with a lot, a lot of support. And then things started to shift. And, you know, I, I felt have felt very positive, really, for the last you know, I don't know, even five, six, seven years, like I really see some light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm an optimist by nature anyway. You know, there's still a lot. I mean, you know, even though there's been this uh, positive shift, there hasn't really been a lot of legislative change yet. Mm -hmm. There really hasn't been much sentencing reform, really substantial sentencing reform. But nonetheless, I'm much more optimistic than I've ever been. And I think there's a real recognition that uh, that the drug war and mass incarceration are, you know, just obviously failed policies and uh, and that we can find a better way. It, so is that what you're seeing in terms of the movement is just the, the sort of the realization among the general public about the failures and, you know, the moral failures and so forth of the prison system or also, you know, the, the work inside the prisons. Mm -hmm. And is that catching on? Well, you know, it's always been there. There's There's been good work going on in prisons for a long, long time. And uh, uh, but it's sporadic and good programs get started then they don't get funded or there's a change of administration. So it's here, there. And, and it's all funded from the outside. The, the government really doesn't put money into it uh, or hasn't much. Uh, so it's mostly volunteer organizations coming in and, you know, with uh, various kinds of funding, foundations and grassroots donors and so forth. And uh, but, uh, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is. Um, you know, criminal justice professionals and higher level prison administrators uh, tend to be somewhat progressive. Now, it uh, depends on how you look at that, because many of them may be politically on the right, uh, but they're progressive in the sense that they're well-educated and they, they, they believe in doing something good. They believe they, they don't want to just, you know, run a lockup, you know, that's destructive. You know, they're, they're well-educated. A lot of them have masters and doctorates and, and, you know, they want to they want to lead something that has value. Right. And so, you know, they're even though you, you get the media and the, and the and the political forces often driving this, you know, tough on crime, you know, lock them up, throw away the key kind of mentality. That's not really the uh, well, it's mixed because there is a core middle management level within the. Uh, within the criminal justice system and prisons in particular state and federal local jails and so forth that the guards that move up through the ranks of the guards and into becoming, you know, lieutenants and captains and that kind of middle management level, they tend to be, uh, have pretty old school ideas and, and have absorbed a lot of negativity because the prison environment gets so polarized between the prisoners and the, you know, the officials, the directional officers and so forth, they, they demonize each other. They create a lot of polarization. And so they carry the brunt of that. You know, it's a chicken or the egg thing, you know, who, who, who starts it. But it's kind of just a setup for it, right? And, and so they absorb a lot of that. And so they tend to have the more negative attitudes, right, towards prisoners. And they realize people don't realize, you know, the, we deal with the worst of the worst. And people don't really realize what these people are like that we have to deal with. But a lot of the higher level administrators are actually much more progressive and really want uh, good programming. And but they're kind of at the whims of uh, the legislature and governors and, you know, state and federal governments and what gets funded and what doesn't get funded. Well, 
What's working, Fleet? I mean, when you talk about bringing transformation to people in prison, you know, that, that your thing is the contemplative meditation teacher and so forth. Does that really work? Or how does that work? What are the leverage points where you've seen people change or something that's even scalable uh, for the prison population? Yeah, you know, I don't think uh, there's one single answer or a silver bullet, uh, but I think uh, I think with all human beings, giving people basic, uh, you know, self-regulation skills. So, you know, a lot of the mindfulness work and mindfulness-based self-regulation skills and giving them even the insight that you can put yourself more in the driver's seat of your own life. You can self-regulate. You don't have to be a victim of your conditioning and your surroundings. So getting that insight and those practices and some basic emotional intelligence learning to prisoners, I think is incredibly effective. And, you know, that's the basis of most of our prison programming. We call it mindfulness-based emotional intelligence programming, right? So that's why we're trying to give them choice. We're trying to, we don't preach to people. We're saying, you know, we're giving you the skills that can create more choice for you. If you want to choose to become a more mindful drug dealer or bank robber, that's up to you. We don't recommend it. We think sooner or later you'll keep getting caught and you'll end back in these places. But really, most people, when they really start, you know, awakening in whatever level, they start, you know, being less inclined towards that and, and thinking a little more long term. So, yes, I think I think this basic mindful space, emotional intelligence training can go a long way. And then there's some of the specific uh, mindfulness-based interventions that have more research behind them, like DBT, dialectical behavioral theory, therapy, uh, acceptance commitment therapy, ACT, mindfulness-based uh, cognitive therapy, MBCT. You know, these have been used a lot in prisons, and there's a lot of good research behind it, showing a lot of traction. You know, there's a lot of people in prison with, who are involved in addiction of various kinds, and a lot of dual addiction and a lot of depression, anxiety, anxiety disorder, and addictions. And those uh, interventions have been shown to be very effective in the outside world with those uh, kinds of diagnoses and people struggling with those issues. And, uh, and the research that's been and done in prisons is very positive as well. So I, I think there's a lot of evidence that, uh, that some kind of mindfulness-based work and integrating it with emotional intelligence training and overall education uh, is very effective. Now, one of the things that it kind of in my own journey and one of the reasons that led me to a more integral approach, uh, besides the fact that I was reading all of Ken's books in prison, but um, was in my own experience, um, as I began to create programs in the prison and do different things. So uh, early on, I got a meditation group started in the prison chapel and they, they didn't weren't too wild about it, but I managed to get it done. And uh, so we had a weekly group and eventually twice a week, twice a week. And I would just put posters up around the prison and I'd show up twice a week, put the cushions out and see who showed up and work with people in that way. And, you know, I saw getting a little traction with some people. But uh, early on, I remembered, you know, a lot of the guys that came, you know, if it was a nice day, they'd rather go out and play softball or do this or that. And I think, well, this is going to be kind of tough in here that my fellow prisoners are a little bit on the you know, flaky side and this side. And then I, you know, I had enough training to realize those kind of judgmental ideas weren't helpful. So I'm thinking, well, what, what, what is it about the way I'm offering or presenting it? Right. And then at some point I had the opportunity to bring someone in who was a Vipassana teacher who uh, did a lot of uh, work with uh, 12 step work and had a model of teaching Vipassana meditation that, and kind of a little bit of hubris that that'll work the whole 12 steps for you. Not just that that's a good, uh, I guess, 11th step, right? The 11th step is about prayer and meditation. But at any rate, brought her in, got some people in the 12-step community there interested in the meditation group. So at that point, I had 
a group of people to kind of be doing participatory research with myself and others who were doing both the meditation training and the 12-step work. Then we started the hospice work. We started the first hospice in a, in a prison anywhere in the world that we're aware of in about 1987. And I recruited, you know, the people into it as we started training. And not all of them, but many of them were involved in the 12-step work and the meditation class, the meditation group. So at that point, I had a group of people who were doing those three things. And the hospice work was incredibly transformative because, first of all, you're in deep confrontation with your own mortality because you're caring for your fellow prisoners, some who are younger, some the same age, some older, who are dying, some of whom were very healthy, even in that prison. Most of them came from other prisons, but they were healthy, got sick and died. And you really could see that they're for there, but for the grace of whatever, go you, right? And uh, we actually had two hospice volunteers healthy hospice volunteers get sick and become hospice patients in that prison. And one of them was, both of them were close friends of mine, and one of them became my hospice patient. So, you know, you were really confronted with your own mortality. And then plus having the opportunity to really put somebody else's needs ahead of your own and that kind of service work. So that's all very transformative. So I had a group of people to be observing, and I was seeing a lot more traction with the people who were had a meditation practice, were studying the Dharma, who are doing the 12-step work and also involved in this kind of profound service, right? And then the last piece came in really when I was able to bring in this program that on the outside is called The Event. And uh, a man who's one of my closest spiritual brothers now, Pernus Steinitz, had inherited that training from somebody else. It goes way back. Uh, the kind of roots of it go back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, at any rate, uh, he had reached out to me because I was publishing some stuff in prison. He wanted to use it in his curriculum. So we got in touch. I learned about his training. So I get his newsletters. I thought was really seemed like very powerful work. So I convinced two of the psychologists in the prison, one that worked with the 12 step group and one that worked with our hospice group to go out in the community and do the training. Cause they just so happened they were going to offer the event in Springfield, Missouri, where this federal prison was. They did it and loved it. We managed to get it into the prison and we did four of them during the last three years that I was there. It's amazing we got it in because it's very intense work. It's it's uh, part of the response, the radical responsibility model that we'll talk about in a moment comes from there. Um, but it's an old school group process, very intense, can be very confrontational, both deep rage work, deep grief work, and uh, you know, very intense work to do with convicts in prison. I mean, we we're in there each time we had thirty guys, and these guys were every kind of crime imaginable. You know. Uh, Shot callers from gangs, you know, major heroin dealers, bank robbers, white collar criminals, everything, every ethnicity and uh, coming in and getting into rage holds with each other and, and, you know, triggering into, you know, really go into their deepest rage and accessing all the childhood stuff and very, very powerful work. And and one of the insights out of this was every one I did out of the 30 prisoners, I would say 85 to 90 percent of them, once they were willing to reveal it had gone through severe either physical, emotional, or sexual abuse as children, or all three, right? And most of them had never revealed or shared it with anybody until that, you know. So the vast majority of people end up in prison are basically programmed to go there, right? Right. Uh, childhood experiences. But at any rate, so I recruited guys into that who were also involved in these other three things. And then we did four miles there. So with graduates, I created a men's group. And, and, these men who were involved in the meditation, the 12-step work, the hospice volunteering, and in this now this this event training and this and this men's work, were not only transforming themselves, they became transformers of that environment. And the warden became so 
enamored of what was happening that he hired my friend Pernas Dianitz as his executive coach. And after I left, brought Perna in to train all his executive staff, and then eventually the the next level of management, the doctors, the nurses. This was the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners, the maximum security federal prison hospital. So, you know, I'm a, that amazing. What and so what? And and some of these guys then went to other prisons and created amazing programs, right? So what I saw there was it's not just one thing. It's not just meditation, right? And and it's 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 addressing all these different levels, right? So. You know, you could look at it from a four quadrants perspective, or you look at it from a lines of development or a stages development uh, of, you know, how we are getting these guys and, and really having them go through a deep process of transformation. So it wasn't just one thing. And that's one thing that really enamored me of this taking a more integral approach, which has really influenced all of our prison work since then. Yeah, well, that's, you know, an amazing story. And um, I've just sort of stuck on the idea of you doing this kind of transformational training because I've done it out of prison Mm -hmm. and it's very challenging at any rate. Mm -hmm. And to do that in prisons, that's got to be just really, really, you know, powerful. It's intense because you're confronting guys, you know, and, and, you know, in each other's face and rage holes and it's very physical, very calm. And then, you know, at the end of the night, you got to go back to the unit with these guys. Mm-hmm. And hope one of these guys isn't, you know, gotten, you know, couldn't handle it and now yeah. wants to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But would you, you would see a shift, I'm assuming, that would be a permanent acquisition of development in these human beings, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Really amazing shifts. Well, that, this, this was really lasting change. And, you know, it's not easy. You know, one of the criticisms of, uh, you know, all religious faith, uh, faith-based work in prison, right? People have often talked about jailhouse conversions, but does it last once they go back out? And of course, you know, I think, uh, you know, even some of, you know, uh, evangelical Christianity is very strong in the prison environment. They consider that one of the mission fields, right, for that work. Uh, you know, some of the uh, black Muslim uh, groups are very dominant in the in the prison setting. And some of the guys that get into this, they get very religious, they get very, you know, and, you know, uh, I, in some ways, I think probably some guys are saved that way. It does get them out of their craziness and out of the, the criminal lifestyle and into something different. Uh, the problem is when they get out, um, you know, if they can't find some way to get into that same world and that same structure, it's, I think it's very likely to fall apart on them because it's like they're, they're being held by a faith and a structure and a certain worldview that makes sense as long as they're in that community in the prison. They're in that small Christian community. They're going to the services or in that they're in that Muslim community. And, you know, they're getting a lot of reinforcement and, you know, there's a lot of identity and, and group, you know, and and if they don't if they can't reach that on the outside, you know, it falls apart pretty quickly because there may not have been, you know, a thorough, a really thorough context shift. Right. Which, would you say that the work you were doing did provide more of a thorough context shift? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that was completely it. And, uh, you know, for me, it was amazing. You know, before I landed in prison, you know, like I'd, I had a, a I went through a three year clinical training program at Naropa, during which uh, every semester I was in some kind of deep uh, group therapy, you know, gestalt work and. Uh, psychodynamic group therapy and TA and and Tavistock model and all kinds of stuff, really intense stuff. And then I spent four months in a therapeutic community as part of the degree. 
And, uh, you know, I've been trained in meditation and Tibetan Buddhism, done a lot of work, a lot of retreats, a lot of solitary retreats. And then in prison, I was really working on myself very intensively, right? And I didn't do my first event until, you know, probably it was about 95 or 96, just three or four years before I got out. And it was in that first event that I saw so clearly that on some level, everything I was doing was to some degree still influenced by and conflated with my basic mom and dad stuff. <laughs> that wasn't the thing. Just the unfulfilled needs of my childhood was still driving. And it was insulting to see it. It was, it was like I was absolutely shocked and insulted. And, and, uh, but it was really the beginning of a whole other level of liberation. And ever since then, I've just been hungry to see any layer and just keep peeling back the layers of that, right? And uh, so, you know, that was a whole nother, a whole nother level of work, which for some reason I hadn't really directly accessed before. Wow. Now, is the work you were doing then, has that continued in any way? My friend Kate Crisp and I started the Peacemaker Community in Boulder, the Peacemaker Institute, and we developed this integral, uh, what is it called? The Integral Peacemaker Training, right? The Integral Peacemaker, which was an, an integrally based leadership training for social activists, social entrepreneurs, uh, and it was structured around the four quadrants, and we had you know, four separate trainings structured around the four quadrants, and it was a year-long program, and it was a great program. We had several thousand people go through it over about eight, seven or eight years, and I really wanted people who were going to get involved in social justice work, activism, to be clear about their own stuff, right? Uh, so they're not just projecting their own, you know, mom and dad issues out on the, the people that they're not happy with in the world. And so I convinced my friend Perna to keep leading one event a year with me. So he and I did one a year for quite a few years through the Peacemaker Institute. Then some of his students took it back over and then they're running it. But I, you know, he and I led it together. He finally retired again. And now I lead it with a student of his. And now we do two a year. So I'm still leading that work. It's very intense work. And, and every year when I'm about to lead another one, I think, oh, my God, this is crazy. I can't believe I still do this. But every time after I do it, I go, oh. I got to keep doing this work because in the event, we actually see that context shift happen for people and we see the link break between, you know, what they got from their, you know, the, whatever happened in their childhoods, you know, it's amazing. Every event, you know, it's self-selecting where we don't advertise so much. We put out through a lot of networks. It's kind of word of mouth to word of mouth. And so it's self-selecting in a way, but the people that come in every year, the level of childhood sex abuse that's in that room is just, heartbreaking just heartbreaking and and uh, you know so there's just all this stuff and you know we just pass this on we pass this on and pass it on so i get to see that link break and i know that these people are not going to be passing this on to their kids or their co-workers or their employees or whoever and and it's so powerful to see that that i'm just every after every time i complete leading one i'm just going okay i have to keep doing this yeah no that's beautiful and that link does break, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. and, and we are liberated. Yeah. From that, at least. Yeah, from that, at least. Yeah. <laughs> so that leads me to, you know, the, sort of a bigger scope of your work now, which is, well, I, I guess it would be uh, summed up in your book, Radical Responsibility. Mm -hmm. And this is a new book. And I assume it is the culmination of your wisdom. Uh, and so why don't we take a look at that and how it would relate more in a general way to all of the polarization and consternation that we find in our culture and in our lives and 
Yeah, start there. Absolutely. Yeah. So it is. Uh, uh, I don't know about the wisdom, but it's a it's the sum of my experience over the last thirty years, and uh, I've been working very intensely on it for about ten years, and especially the last two years, I'm very happy to see it finally coming out. And it's called Radical Responsibility: uh, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become Unstoppable Force for Good. And it's really meant to be an integration of personal and collective responsibility. The first book focuses more on the personal responsibility side because that's the foundation. I hope to be able to get a second book out that will be Radical Responsibility. Uh, I don't know what the actual title, but it'll be focused on social justice, social transformation. And uh, what I mean by Radical Responsibility, the way I usually describe it is voluntarily embracing 100% responsibility for each and every circumstance we face day in and day out, internal circumstances within ourselves and the circumstances around the world, I mean, around us that we experience in the world. And, you know, that's when you think about it, it's a pretty radical idea because mostly, you know, anytime we're unhappy with stuff, we're attributing the causation to people and things outside of ourselves. And it seems very compelling and we get involved in a lot of blame and our whole culture, I think, is very, uh, really uh, driven by a lot of shame and blame in our, in our culture. And it's very detrimental. And I think it goes back to some of the Calvinist roots of of the religious culture of this country and the idea of a flawed nature of humanity. So if human beings are dangerous and flawed, then absent some coercive force of shaming or incarceration or, or, or whatever, you know, you can't trust people and they won't behave well. Right. So I think it's just embedded throughout our whole culture in so many ways. Actually, if I could interrupt, it's just one of the things I love so much about Trumpa's teaching of basic goodness. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, no, we are not fallen. We are not uh, flawed. We are basically good. We have a basic goodness. And there is a rising sun. And uh, it was always so encouraging. The, the gospel sometimes translates the good news, right? So the good news of that is that, you know, there's nothing wrong with us. That, you know, under all the surface stuff that we all have, the conditioning and all the fear-based stuff that we've inherited, you know, underneath all that, uh, there's a level of our being that's unstained and completely workable and whole. And and uh, we have this innate basic goodness. So it's an incredibly powerful message. And really, for me, it's the it is the cross-cultural consensus over several thousand years. It's really a minority view. This thing of the flawed nature of humanity is a very minority view cross-culturally and over the, over the millennia uh, that became dominant in Western culture. And uh, so the first chapter in Radical Responsibility is called There's Nothing Wrong With and it's, a, and it's about just making the case for basic goodness. Um, so the, the book is really structured around understanding the human condition, that we are set up to live a fear and survival-based life, you know, that uh, job one for any species is survival. And so what is our neurobiology set up to pay attention to? Threat, right? And so, you know, absent uh, some skill to do otherwise, we, we tend to be driven by fear-based psychology. And we know from the negativity bias and things like that, that our long-term memory ends up being mostly full of fear and negativity and so forth. You know, like Rick Hansen kind of summarizes it beautifully saying that our neurobiology, our brain set up back like Velcro for negativity and Teflon for positivity, right? So that's what's in there. That's what drives us. It's what drives the culture. And, but we're also hardwired, we now know from modern neuroscience, we're also hardwired for altruism, for compassion, for kindness. We get all kinds of neurobiological payoffs when we act altruistically, right? So we have the ability to rise above that fear-based conditioning. 
So in the book, we start off with, you know, making the case for basic goodness as a ground. Then there's a chapter on mindfulness as core path and part of the foundation for embracing radical responsibility. And then a chapter on emotional intelligence. So that's all kind of the foundation, right? And then I go into talking about the human condition and helping people understand how we got to where we are. Really, you know, I, I like um, part of my goal there is for people to become what Tony Robbins calls practical psychologists, right? We don't have to get a degree, but do we understand enough about how all this works so that we can actually have more agency over, over our lives, right? Do we understand enough about our own psychology and the psychology of, of how human beings interact that we can be more skillful with ourselves and with others? So I try to help people really understand the human condition as it is and, uh, and then really talk about the neuroscience around how we can change that how we can supersede that fear-based conditioning and how we can actually change the brain. And, uh, and then I go into the actual radical responsibility model, which I teach experientially, and uh, which is really understanding the victim mindset, what drives that, how that operates psychologically, and then what the shift is to ownership. And one of the key distinctions that I'm making throughout the book is a distinction between ownership and blame. Because to get radical responsibility, you have to be able to step out of the paradigm of blame. You know, we've all been enculturated when something goes down, somebody's got to be blamed, right? And so I've been blamed enough in my life. I've experienced enough shame. I don't want any more. So anything happens, I'm going to deflect it out immediately, right? And so we, we instinctually blame. It's very human. We all have this tender, vulnerable place. And when anything happens, we just, we want to shift, you know, shift the blame. So um, but there is another alternative, right? There's, and so ownership is not for the purpose of self-blame. Part of it may be looking into circumstances we face and see, do we have any part in creating those or manifesting or just allowing them to be? But that's not for self-blame. That's just if, if I see how things unfold, that gives me the opportunity to make different choices and get different results, right? Whether I see that I just allowed something or, or even that I could have prevented it if I'd known, you know, or I, at least if I recognize this pattern next time, maybe I could do something different. Or maybe I see that I actually completely set the whole thing up. Or it's a manifestation of some underlying life script I've got going on from my childhood or whatever. But then there may be situations where I can't see I had any, there's nothing I could have done. And I don't see that I had any role in, in creating this. Well, it's still at that point, okay, what are my choices, right? Because my, you know, no matter what happened to me and how unjust it may be, at some point, you know, my destiny is going to be determined how I react or respond to that circumstance. And so can I empower myself to live a choice? And, and it's all grounded completely in a model of self-compassion and compassion for others. So this is not, not about feeling bad about getting stuck in the victim mindset or demonizing others for that in any way, shape or form. But it's just like what works mm -hmm. Can we find a way with a lot of self-compassion when we recognize we're stuck there to give ourselves the compassion we need, get the validation that we need and then go, OK, now what can I do? You know, what can I do to move my life forward in some kind of creative way? And even if it's something really heinous that happened to me, you know, once it happened, even if it's something that should never happen to any human being, and, and whether I had anything to do with it or not, it shouldn't happen to any human being. But the reality is it's in my life now. And I'm either going to let it take me down or I'm going to find some way to move forward. And that may require almost a heroic effort to do so. But there's countless examples of people in our human history who have done that with just horrific circumstances. Right. Yeah. 
No, it's um, amazing. We'll do this with all the garden variety stuff all day long. So where we begin practicing with this stuff is recognizing moment to moment how we're constantly going into that, giving our power away by moving into that victim mindset, which is really the key distinction there is if I'm convinced, you know, if I'm upset, I'm convinced it's Jeff Salzman's fault, right? And, uh, you know, we had a breakdown in an agreement or something and I'm really upset and I'm pissed off and it's all your fault. You know, I'm just, I just put you in charge of my internal state because I can't control Jeff Salzman, I don't think. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, if I'm really convinced that I'm upset and it's because of what you're doing, then I just put you in charge of my internal state. We do it all the time with everything, but it just doesn't make sense. And there is yeah. another thing. Well, it's interesting to me because, um, you know, I focus a lot on this, even in the Daily Evolver and in integral practice in general, because even using the basic integral theory fleet of, of moving from first tier, which right. is the first six stages of development, to second tier, which is the beginning of the integral stages of development, one of the moves, one of the shifts wow. there is that we move from, you know, call it what you will, a fear operating system. Mm-hmm. to a love operating system, a creativity operating system. And so this move to um, deconstruct this fear that is, as you say, it's just the more you look, the more you see, the more pervasive it is, the more it runs you from, you know, your childhood. And yeah. all of the things that you're talking about is basically a deconstruction of that to liberate us into a more loving operating system. And, yeah. and my question is, you know, does that work? You know, we're basically all looking for the technology. And then maybe there are many technologies. I think there are many technologies for doing this, many, you know, practices and, and methodologies and therapies. And a lot of what has come online in green postmodernism, the therapeutic culture is about that. And then I would say, if I may, that, you know, the, the, what's happening at Naropa, this, this encounter of Western psychology and Eastern mysticism or Eastern, Eastern uh, uh, meditation has been tremendously fruitful at getting at, you know, these deep structures and liberating them, you know, onion skin by onion skin. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think part of what the difference between first and second tier is that those fear-based structures, no matter how kind of enlightened they become, you know, even at the green meme and, you know, and the postmodernist stage, which we're all part of, and, and uh, 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 you know, people that think like you and I do in this very much larger movement. Um, uh, but nonetheless, that the underlying fear-based structures drive that I'm right quality of all, of all the first-tier memes, right? So even at the green meme postmodernist level, there's a very strong identification about being right, right? Which is driving, I think, the very untoward extremes of it. You know, one of the distinctions in the radical responsibility model, we talk about living either in a drama zone or in the empowerment zone, right? And that's that fundamental shift uh, towards ownership, right? Towards radical responsibility. And so uh, for the characteristic behaviors of being in the drama zone are blame, blaming others, Resentment, holding on to resentments, justifying our own behaviors to, to ourselves and others, uh, shaming ourselves and others, and then being right. And being right is really one of the really big ones because it's so wrapped into our identity, right? And so I think those, you know, that's the, that's the issue at first tier, at first tier, even though there's some wonderful work that's been done, uh, that there's something about 
there's, a, there's almost a naivete uh, still about the human condition. And there's a naivete about what Trump Rinpoche called spiritual materialism. That the power, you know, we don't realize what uh, what we're up against, what a formidable foe our, our fear-based conditioning is, and psychologically, if you want to call it the ego or whatever you want to call, but it's this construct of fear and survival-based, con- that will co-opt anything to its own ends, including the most progressive political philosophies and the therapeutic culture and all the you know, the world of inclusivity and diversity and all these wonderful things that really started with the 60s and have emerged into this, you know, postmodernist green meme structure, but is now evolving towards it being dominated by this I'm right and the weaponization of all these ideas and, and again being co-opted by the basic blame and shame culture in the U.S., which is still driven us by this Calvinist ideology. And we now have kind of an extreme left that's that's just as extreme as the as the as the religious right, and it's just as religious. You know, it's it's religion is called you know diversity, identity, politics, whatever they want to call it, but it's just as religious as the Christian right. Yep, and, and just, just as model perspectival and first tier. Yeah. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's really it's really something. Uh, and and of course, you know, it's more dangerous and hard to deal with in a certain way because it it embodies all these wonderful values of postmodernism and all these wonderful va- things that came out of the 60s, 70s that, you know, that have come out and, uh, but then co-ops it in that direction. So to argue against it, you almost have to argue against what, against what you believe in. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, it and it is, it has taken those and it, I, I actually, to give, uh, you know, woke culture, if you will, credit, it takes it further so that we can actually continue to see deeper into the karmas. Yeah, that well, are animating our culture. Well, There's see, more to see. Yeah, well, you have to see the prison before you can before you can find your way out, right? You have to yeah. see the bars. So, yeah, we are seeing we are seeing a whole another structural uh, element of culture, and it, and it is a stepping stone to uh, to the second tier, and to you know, yeah, as so, you know, we have to go to these excesses. In, you know, before we get to those tipping points. And in a broad sense, I, I have no real worry about that. I worry sometimes about things getting churned up in the wake in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and even some of the organizations and culture I'm involved in, you know, it's a very difficult place to be right now. And I worry about whether some things will survive that wake, even though I fully trust that over a couple of decades, we're going to move into second tier. Yeah, in yeah I do too. But, you know, it ain't pretty in the meantime. No. Uh, but, you know, that's what we're doing here is trying to find that new integration. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about not being right, that's really a, somehow strikes me as a key piece of it. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, like if I, if I look at myself, I, um, I you know, I, I'm pretty comfortable that I'm right about the idea of evolution and that sort of thing and whatever. But in terms of the ideologic ideologies at play in the culture. I don't know anymore, in a way. Uh, I was invited to this discussion group where we were looking at Colorado politics. And, you know, so we had the conservatives pushing the, you know, conservative uh, positions and all of the stuff on the ballot. And we had the people on the right and on the left. And I found myself believing the last one that I listened to. You know, I mean, I don't know. I was, was I a socialist? Yes. Was I a libertarian? Yes. Sure. Uh, and uh, I feel like that's in a way progress because I'm dropping some of the contractions. 
around mm-hmm. ideologies that have, you know, I've lived with all my life. I think I'm having a similar experience. I read pretty broadly, um, you know, right and left centrist and uh, a lot of books and podcasts and different things. And, uh, you know, I find a lot of agreement with a lot of things. Uh, I find, you know, the further you go out to the extreme, the less agreement I find. Uh, but, you know, where, where as long as people within a, in a realm of thoughtful, reflective, you know, kind of looking at issues, I find a, I find a, a, a lot of things to agree with in these in these different areas. And uh, yeah, the last the last one I read, especially if it's an intelligent, well-argued thing, you know, I'm going to tend to be strongly uh, influenced by that. And I, and I do think I do think it's a good thing. And and I think, you know, that's one of the, the problems we have politically now is that we've somehow got this, you know, winner take all culture, which dominates all all the landscape of, you know, it dominates the corporate world. It dominates sports. It dominates everything. Right. Everything goes to the winner. And um, and so in politics, you know, they have this idea like if, you know, if, uh, you know, if the people that want, you know, like uh, Bernie to be president or something or, or, or Senator Warren or something, you know, that if they could win, then they would get their way with everything. We could just shove this that agenda down the whole country's throat and, and we'd win. And that they, it's so naive to think that, you, you know, you have to find some way to get some middle swath of the country on board with some compromise that we can move forward as a people. I mean, if you try to shove an agenda right or left on the other side, it's just going to come back, you know, and and it doesn't make sense anyway, because nobody's agenda is that right. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I've been, you know, cogitating on this for a long time, because I've been so frustrated with the polarization of the left and right. And even in my work in the criminal justice system, you know, it's like when I go into prisons, I, I want the prisoners to get and they do get because it's who I am. Did I get that most of them were programmed to end up there, uh, that they've experienced tremendous injustice in their lives and abuse and neglect and the criminal justice system has incredible injustice built into it. And it's incredibly racist, whether by default or by design, the impact is incredibly racist. And I want them to get that. I get that and that I have a lot of empathy and compassion. Actually, it breaks my heart to see all the people that are in prison. So I want them to get that. I also want them to get that their only ticket out is to start owning the choices they're making right now today. And hmm. that that's their life in prison and outside of prison is going to be determined nothing by nothing other than that. No matter if even people can go out and change the laws, that's not really going to affect their life that much. What's going to affect their life if they start taking ownership for, you know, their destiny by the choices they're making. And if they want to go out and become an activist, great, get yourself educated, get, get your butt out of prison and go out there and change the world. But sitting around with all your justifications and, you know, it's not going to take you anywhere, but it's going to keep you coming back. So it's that dual message that, of course, you know, the left causes and yes, of course, we want to keep trying to work, you know, make the playing field as equal as we possibly can and deal with all the injustices and create as much equal opportunity as we can. And 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 at the same time, it requires personal responsibilities, both. And this idea, you know, of we don't want to hear anything about I was actually a meeting at a meditation, you know, community that I'm part of that's been totally taken over, at least this local community, by this, you know, extreme wave of the green meme postmodernist stuff. And I brought up this a little bit in a community dialogue. And the one guy spoke up and said, you can't use the word personal responsibility here. This is very triggering for us. Being talked about the, I can't remember what, there was a law passed, a particular one that used that language. And, you know, personal responsibility has just been used as a hammer to 
to beat down the people, you know, that, and so he literally said, we cannot use that language in here, personal responsibility, you know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, so it's obviously it's both, you know, we need personal responsibility and we need collective responsibility. We need them both if we're going to get anywhere. Well, it's, it's interesting to me, as you say this fleet, that one of the ways to get to that ownership thing that you have done, it seems to me, in your work has been to have people fully feel their victimization. Absolutely. Isn't that something? That's that's the way I lead them through this process. I just led this process yesterday with a group of correctional officers and probation parole officers in uh, London, Ontario. And so the the way this, it's a 10-week program. They had a full day of training that I did about 10 weeks ago. And then they have eight two-hour sessions, community practice groups, we call them, over eight weeks, led by local facilitators we've recruited and trained. And this one probation and parole group was was really kind of a tough group. They had this kind of, there was a couple of people that were very negative. And a correctional culture tends to get very negative. Of course, you got people running around in their reptilian brain all day, right? I mean, hypervigilance. And so what are they, you know, big drama triangle going on between years. So what do they create with each other? A lot of drama and negativity. And then they all complain about how negative their culture is, right? And that they're victimized by the negative culture they're in. And I often look at them and go, who's creating this negative culture? (laughs) And But at any rate, this particular group was really, you know, a lot of that going on. And in the morning part, we we were in a circle and they were talking about, and they were just, it was just so negative. And I was sitting observing it going, boy, they're going to love it when I go through the radical responsibility thing after lunch, right? But after lunch, I took them through this process. They're in pairs and I asked them to identify a time when they really felt victimized in their adult life, but not something where there was a huge violation, but more kind of garden variety, but something where they were outraged. Somebody took advantage of them, broke a trust, whatever, something at work or in their life, you know, but something at the time they were outraged and felt incredibly. And so I, I asked them to go back to that and, and as if it just happened and tell their partner that story. And I give them three minutes to convince their partner of their victimization. And I ask, I try to pump them up to get them into as much as go full blown into the victim mindset. And your idea, your job is to turn your partner into your rescuer on Cartman's drama tangle with the persecutor, rescuer, victim triangulization. And so they go into it, right? And both do it. I get them go both ways. And then I surface, what are the themes that come out of that? So, you know, betrayal, injustice, abuse of power, other people's incompetence, other people's deception and dishonesty, being unseen, unvalued, all that kind of stuff. And then I said, okay, what what were the feelings that were there when you went through that? And uh, so shock and disbelief, rage, hurt, disappointment, anger, shame, uh, you know, overwhelmed, despair, hopelessness, helpless, powerless, all these kind of things, right? So I surface all that and I get that up on a board. And and then I ask them, okay, now we're going to go back and do something more difficult. We're going to go back and revisit those same circumstances. And you're going to tell the ownership version of that story, the ownership version of that story. And to help them, I say, okay, we're going to use this little rubric called CPA. So like certified public accountant. So I say, look back and see if there's any way you can see you caused it or at least contributed to it, those that that situation. Or is there any way you promoted it? Like you were, there's some way you're setting yourself up for this. It's a life pattern that keeps recurring to you. And there's some way that you're kind of setting yourself up for it. Or at the very least, did you allow it just by not paying attention or not listening to that little voice in the back of your head? Or maybe you didn't have good boundaries. You didn't speak up for yourself or you were naive or whatever, right? So I get them to do that. And I have, they both 
do the ownership story. And then we surface what comes out of that. So we surface all these things they recognize where they did have a part in something and most of them are able to recognize something. And then how does it feel different? So there may be some, you know, it may feel challenging, disorienting. Uh, if they recognize their part, they may feel some remorse, embarrassment or regret, but often they feel a sense of relief and clarity and like they're learning something, feel less helpless, more empowered, right? And so enough of that comes out from the group that it, they see this very clearly. And then I show them these two landscapes. Well, same circumstances, two different very worlds to live in. And it would seem that that means there's choice involved. And I keep going back. I let them argue about it. I really try to make it really experiential. And then I get to where they agree that there's choice involved, at least at some point. You know, even if it doesn't feel like choice when you're down there, at some point there could be choice or at some point there is choice. And they argue about the worst case scenarios. And I try to keep them focused on their own thing. But I go to the worst case scenarios, even I use Viktor Frankl's story of, you know, what he learned being at Auschwitz in the death camp and others, and they bring up their own scenarios. And so they finally get to the place where they agree, yeah, there's choice at some point, maybe a tough choice, but there's choice. Okay, what does that say about the circumstances? If it doesn't have to be this or have to be this, and we get to this distinction, circumstances are neutral. And, and they get it, and they see how liberating it is. And they argue with it. And I'll spend, you know, I'll spend a lot of time with the argument around it. And we get to the point of understanding it's not a value statement about the circumstances. Some circumstances are criminal and negligent and unjust and terrible. But it's pointing to the choice aspect that regardless of what the circumstance is, we do have some choice about where we're going to live vis-a-vis that. It may be a tough choice around really tough circumstances, but there's still choice. And watching the same group that had spent all morning just being like childish victims in the room, it was really kind of embarrassing, not all of them, but a group of them. And then to watch their eyes and see them getting it and then see them kind of not wanting to get it, you know, and then, but then getting it, really, you know, I mean, actually it's my, I, you know, but they get there, they get there even, you know, and, and it's really gratifying to see, especially some of the ones that really get it. One of them just popped up and said, ah, oh, that actually takes the power away from the circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I never actually said it that way. I'm going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's just that integration of interior and exterior where you realize that reality isn't just what's out there or what's happening. Reality is that. And, and then it's what I'm doing with it. Yeah. Well, part of the whole internal landscape, exactly, that most of us feel something happens and we have an emotion and they're directly linked, right? You know, somebody says, son, I feel pissed off or whatever, right? It's directly linked. But actually, our feelings arise, and we explore this in the book and in these trainings, our feelings actually arise in relation to the perception of met or unmet needs, right? So when our needs for food, warmth, shelter, love, you know, connection, autonomy, respect, creative expression, whatever, our basic human needs. When they're met, we have all the warm and fuzzy emotions, right? When we perceive they're being met. If I perceive my needs are not being met or they're threatened in some way, then I have all the challenging emotions, right? Fear, anxiety, anger, envy, hatred, jealousy, what have you. And it's based on my perception that my needs are threatened or not being met. And then I ask them, so are our perceptions always accurate? Most people realize, no, they're not always accurate. Sometimes we completely misperceive things. But at the very least, our perceptions are, uh, you know, a limited read on a limited set of data. 
uh, something happens, we immediately start telling ourselves a story. And based on our conditioning experience, we start adding meaning and we develop an assumption and we narrow our field of vision and we find the data to make that into a conclusion and into a belief. And, you know, so our, that whole field of perception is between external stimuli and a feeling. And once we realize that and see that, you know, the bad news is I don't get to blame my feelings on other people and situations anymore. But the good news is if there is this whole internal landscape, that's something I can do something with. I can check out my perceptions. And then if I see if there is, in reality, there are some needs that are challenged. Well, is that the only way I can get those needs met? Or actually, are those people or groups required to meet that need? You know, what's my expectation? So there's this whole internal landscape that we can then be empowered to have self-agency over instead of just assuming, you know, when X happens, I have to feel this way. When Y happens, I have to feel this way. That's not a very empowered or free way to live, but that's the way most of us live. And then we identify like any, any normal human being would feel that way. And of course, I'm a, I, I had a, I, I'll have to do this anonymously. In a recent meditation intensive, a, a nine day deep meditation intensive, a session, there was a, a young person who during some of the Q&A, it was mostly, it was all silence except there were some talks and Q&A and kept bringing up some of these kind of typical green meme postmodernist, you know, questions. And I, and I, I, I just kind of held my ground. I didn't really argue a lot, but I didn't, I, I wasn't, you know, I just kind of, I was kind of implacable in a certain way, but kept a, an inquiry really, you know, I kept pushing her back into or inviting her back into an inquiry about what she was saying. And she obviously was struggling and didn't like it. Didn't like the fact that I wasn't just affirming what she was saying. Right. So anyway, I didn't know where that was going to go, but, um, we had at the very end of this retreat, we had this consoles closing circle, right? Where people just shared, you know, their experience. And this person spoke up and suddenly said, you know, I just realized that, you know, I really, I love being offended. I mean, that's my thing, you know? And I, I'm like, I'm like a master at being offended. That's all I know. And she's just going for this free, she you know, I don't know who I'd be if I wasn't offended. Wow. You know, it was just, everybody just draws dropped, you know, it was just wow. so, and I'm not even doing it justice. You know, it was just came out with such clarity. And she saw that her whole identity was built around being offended about all this stuff, you know, the typical stuff that the green meme would be offended about. Right. And she just saw it with such clarity. And it was really kind of amazing. Wow. Yeah, that is so beautiful. When that happens. Yeah. You know. and I'm so glad that I didn't really get in. You know, I didn't try to talk her out of what she was thinking or really argue with her. I just didn't go along with it and just kept, you know, putting the ball back into her court with a sense of inquiry. Right. Yeah. And not making her wrong at all. Or yeah. anything like that. And so she sat with it for nine days and, and suddenly that insight came out. Yeah. Yeah, I like being offended too, um, <laughs> and I I kind of got to watch it, and I do. And um, you know, the more I let people in, and the more I see the world as my brothers and sisters, uh, you know, the less offended I am. But boy, that contracts really quickly. Well, I, so I recontract really quickly. Yeah, in the last couple of years, I find myself getting offended a lot with kind of what we're talking about, the more extremes of the green meme post, 
modernist thing. And uh, and you're a model for me for someone who has a more balanced view than I do and sees the good in all of that. I'm trying. I really try to. But I, I do get kind of I struggle sometimes with the extremes because it, it just seems like it's uh, it's overtaken so much of my world of the last couple of years. I feel like I'm not I'm almost not welcome in most of the world that I thought was my world. You know, yep. I thought it was my tribe. Like I've, I've literally, I've been, I've either kicked myself out of my tribe or somebody else kicked me out of my tribe, but I, I feel homeless. You know? Well, you're not the first to tell me that story uh, for people who are working in, you know, the various realms of social justice, that mm-hmm. uh, it's a new world there. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, there's a totalitarian impulse that is, you know, formidable. And I don't see it because I'm not, I, you know, I tend to not want to leave the house if possible. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed more and more that, you know, and I guess even evolutionarily speaking, we can see that, the, you know, the green postmodern, you know, every stage has its totalitarian impulse mm-hmm. and it's going to have its day and it's having it. And, you know, I think this uh, presidential campaign will help us metabolize some of it. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you had an example with this person at this meditation retreat in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could see the way beyond it. But it's like I said, it's ugly in the meantime. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure you and I are going to see the end of it. Uh, but yeah, I don't know whether we will or not. But, you know, that's why I'm really inspired to try to you know, uh, without, you know, just getting into a fight, I, I, my, my, my inspiration is to try to present, at least from my perspective, what's a bigger view. And, and for me, it really has a lot to do with bringing together the, the value in both yes. and the importance, like dealing with causes and conditions and injustice and, and working to create, you know, a tremendous equality of opportunity is really important, not a quality of outcome, you know, which it seems to be what the extreme left wants now. And, and obviously the only way to, to enforce that is tyranny. You know, the whole polarity between uh, uh, freedom and equality, you know, you go too far one way or the other and, and it just doesn't work. So, um, you know, but then also really what the traditional values of personal responsibility and the importance of that and, and bringing those together, because I think bringing those together, we can actually deal with some of the really serious challenges we face, like dealing with climate change is going to require both personal and collective responsibility. Dealing with really changing the landscape in terms of racism and a lot of the injustices and so forth, you know, requires that. But also it's got to come out of some view, some more positive view, like we actually are better off than we've ever been in in so many different ways. And, you know, human evolution is a brutal thing. I mean, we all slithered out of the swamp, you know, whatever, how many millennia ago, and evolution is a brutal thing. And, you know, we've gotten to a pretty enlightened era in so many ways, and we still have a lot of problems. But indict humanity over the problems that we have today, it just, and then indict history. And, you know, it's like, it just doesn't make sense. We're constantly indicting ourselves that we're so horrible. Yeah. When actually we're we're doing relatively well if you have any kind of historical perspective or an evolutionary perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I often think that. Collectively, we allow ourselves to to do self-condemnation in a way that we have learned not to do with ourselves individually because we've been through therapy. Yeah. But collectively, we could still beat the shit out of us. 
Yeah, that's a great that's a great insight. Yeah, we haven't made that leap to we haven't done it collectively yet. The collective self compassion. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So, um, what else might we put on the table here, Fleet? I think we're um, winding down time wise, but I don't want to leave anything out. Yeah, I I had a thought earlier. I'm trying to. There was a thread we were on. I was going to say something, and it kind of went into the into the uh, into the ether. Um, you know, I, one of the things that, that I'm really happy about in terms of the, uh, secular mindfulness movement that, uh, you know, a lot, some people get worried and sometimes that this is, you know, mindfulness light or medicine, Buddhism light or Dharma light or something. But, and of course there's all that, but I'm actually really happy about the fact that we're realizing societally that giving human beings some basic tools for self-regulation and some information about how all this functions and how we can better regulate it, and then some basic tools about understanding better how to communicate with each other, you know. Uh, so this integration, uh, some kind of integration of mindfulness with emotional intelligence or social-emotional learning is, you know, is really getting traction in our society. Yeah, it really is. I, I agree. And it's, you know, basically developing a witness consciousness Mm -hmm. in a way where we can see instead of just be Mm -hmm. ourselves. And, um, you know, when you have that uh, ability to see yourself, it's the question becomes who's seeing. Exactly. And it's this bigger Jeff. Yeah. That is, uh, and, and, you know, the beat goes on, but that is the leverage point that we're at right now, particularly at the, at the, yeah, the, further we, the further we take that inquiry, you know, the further it takes us out of, uh, you know, the multiple perspective, uh, multiple perspectival approach. And it really starts to take us into second tier and so forth. And it just opens things up so much. And I think that's, that's one of the issues now that, you know, at that time I, at Naropa, when we were both there, you know, it was a very rich time for me. Uh, you know, my, I was teaching, you know, three classes a semester and, and they all involved, uh, um, what do we call it? When the people go out and do work in the community, they all call, you know, all the students were having to do projects out in the community and it was all, they were like my laboratories for experimenting with all these different threads and all these different modalities. So it was very rich. And I was very involved with this. Uh, uh, one of the things I was very involved with there was seeing great the degree in engaged Buddhism. And that was in the same department with the MDiv degree that you did. And and so, you know, there's a very rich tradition of socially engaged Buddhism and socially engaged spirituality from other traditions like Dorothy Day and, and others that is very different from this current extremes of the social justice movement. Yeah. Because not about making other people wrong. And it really honors, you know, from I, I've been deeply involved as well as in the Shamal tradition, also in the Zen peacemakers. And the basic tenets of that approach are not knowing, bearing witness, and then loving action or, or compassionate action. So that quality of not knowing, you know, is the opposite of being right, right? So that quality of not knowing is so missing in the world of social justice and activism because it's all about knowing and all about being right. And, you know, even among, I find among young, many young Buddhists who are socially active, they almost, uh, they talk about the baby boomers and the socially engaged Buddhism as being out of touch. And this idea that, 
you know, us versus them is not a good thing. You know, they, they just say that us versus them thing to shut us down. We need more us versus them. And it's a war and we got to fight the war. I mean, and they still try to couch that within that somewhere in the Dharma. You know, I mean, there are profound teachings, not only in, in the Buddha Dharma, but in other contemplative spiritual traditions that provide a contemplative ground and a contemplative view a lot of which has to do with letting go of identity and letting go of being right, and letting go of polarizations that actually allow us to find the wisdom based actions that can move us all forward. Right. Yep. And the perspective of this at peacemaker work is if you can, to the extent that you can get out of your fixed ideas about yourself and others, right. Get out of all the knowing to whatever degree into some quality of not knowing, which means you're in beginner's mind or only don't know mind, or you're just in an open mind where you can actually freshly see the data. And then you let yourself be touched by reality as it is. And you bear witness to that. Then it naturally, what naturally arises and people have been discovering this for thousand years, what naturally arises out of that is wisdom based actions that are related to what is, they don't come from an agenda. They don't come from an ideology because of basic goodness. When basic goodness contacts reality, you get wisdom. And you get the, the wisdom of reality or the wisdom of what is. And, you know, we have so many wonderful spiritual traditions around this. And there's a whole development from the 60s forward into at least up into the 90s of, of engaged Buddhism in this country, and both in Asia and the West. And it's all being just kind of tossed aside and almost ridiculed um, as being ineffective. Um, really? And, and I think that's really a loss, tremendous loss. Yeah, you were talking about how you would be doing a volume two of radical responsibility that would be more collective and more, um, you know, directed to the social justice movement. Is this what you would be talking about? Is this where Absolutely. you would? Absolutely. Yeah. Even, even, even in the, last, the second to last chapter in, in uh, radical responsibility is about accessing the heart mind. And I kind of get there through the whole book of weaving through how we can understand enough about our own neurobiology and some of the current, things around interpersonal neurobiology, Dan Siegel's work and others' work, that we begin to understand it by developing a profound inner awareness and interoceptive awareness of the inner landscape of our body, that that internal awareness is not only very nurturing for us and holds us and heals a lot of trauma and taps us into an abiding presence where we're, we actually feel embodied and grounded and others are going to experience as more present and available. And we now know neurobiologically that the neural pathways involved with that internal perception or interoception are also connected to our ability to attune with others and to create intimacy with others, right? And so, and we, you know, we kind of have the, the, in terms of our brain, we have the body brain that's operating all the systems, right? And, uh, and then we have, you know, maybe our, or, you know, if you think of the bottom-up brain, which is a very conditioned and programmed brain, and it's a top-down brain, which is more conscious in our ability to, you know, to make clear decisions. But then beyond that, we have what I'm calling the heart-mind, which, which is not just encapsulated by the skin, but it's the mind that includes others. It's the mind of we, or what Dan Ziegel calls the we, right? You join the me, you know, it's that, that heart-mind. And that, that heart-mind has been what the contemplatives have been pointing to forever. And for me, that can be the basis of doing really powerful social change work and real social justice is going to be grounded in that. Yeah. I mean, you won't find anybody more willing to speak truth to power than Dorothy Day. But Dorothy Day was also a contemplative and influenced by Peter Morin, who was a profound contemplative, right? So even though they took a tough stand and a very much, you know, anti-Vatican stand as being, you know, social activist Catholics, 
they they still always had this contemplative ground. They weren't they weren't demonizing anyone, right? They were willing to fight, but they weren't demonizing and they weren't making everybody wrong and they weren't indicting humanity. They were just working for change and, and bearing witness to the truth of what is, but from a place of love instead of a place of anger and demonization. Yeah, may that be so. Is it true that there are people who sort of get that and still say that there's a place for outrage and anger? And, you know, I, I want to see what's the piece of the truth that the outrage police have? Well, I think there's there definitely is a place for outrage and anger. There's a place for outrage and anger and heartbreak. It's then what do we do with that? Do we turn that into an identity and then weaponize that identity into this very polarized, divisive kind of warfare? Or do we use that to to rouse ourselves to a, to a higher level of vision where we can actually see the way forward? You know, there is something, you know, outrage and anger can be in, you know, that's been an argument in activism for a long time, you know, and activists say, well, if I meditate, you're going to take my anger away. And without anger, it wouldn't fuel my activism. Right. And some of the meditators, I don't want to go back to activism. I'll just get all angry again. Right. You know, and that the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for years has been trying to get meditators to become more active and get the activists to meditate. Right. You know, find this middle ground. So, you know, outrage, I think is very important. But then what do we do with that? Do we turn it into an identity? You know, just like that young woman in, in the session, you know, she realized she had turned her, uh, what did I call it? The uh, outrage, uh, which is Don't another of outrage uh, into an identity. Right. And as soon as we do that, we're, we're obviously not really involved in any kind of transformative process, personal or social. Right. So I think there's plenty of room for outrage. But what do we do with that? I mean, I, I, where's the reflective thinking about how the culture is ever going to, you know, move forward together, right? So uh, I think out, there's plenty of place for anger and outrage. I think it gets us out of our complacency, right? Yeah. And we need to be out of our complacency. Fear is good in the sense that it's intelligent. I mean, we should be fearful about the impact of climate change right now, and it should be shaking us out of our complacency. But that doesn't mean dropping into fear and survival-based very identity loaded tactics are yep. going to be the way forward. No, Fleet, you're you're really just describing this messy and and and, and difficult move forward where we really want to include the juice of all of it, and uh, in in a new integration that I don't think we're there yet with. You know, I was very gratified uh, to see that. Um, uh, ben Jones on CNN has got a new show coming out. I don't know if you've seen the ads. It's something, Redemption something, where he's, he's shining a spotlight on restorative justice and on, in fact, on the victim offender reconciliation models within restorative justice. And, uh, you know, they're going to highlight a few different things and look at it. But in advertising it, what he's talking about is he's saying, you know, our culture's gotten to the place where it's all blame, there's no forgiveness. It's just this call out culture and blame based culture. And he says, I just want to bring, you know, something positive, uh, you know, back in for us to focus on that forgiveness is possible. And he says not all these situations work out, but, you know, there is something, you know, to be w- being willing to do that work and the possibilities of forgiveness and the possibilities of love, you know. And I found that phenomenal coming from a guy who's, you know, a, a Strong credentials as an activist and, you know, yep. done amazing work. Well, and, he's part of this Jay-Z $50 million thing too, exactly. right? Isn't he yeah. the big director of that? 
Yeah, I, I, I get a great integral vibe from him, and I'm definitely uh, eager to check out that show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Fleet, that's a full meal, man. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I, I really, my, my partner Sophie and I watch your The Daily Evolver a lot, and we really enjoy it. And uh, I really appreciate the work you're doing. The um, guy, I really do. You do a great job of getting the integral message out. And it's really integral way of not, you know, not even, you know, getting divisive about integral versus non-integral. I think you really, you know, you you really honor that uh, that approach of, you know, that we have to meet ourselves and meet everyone else where we all are. And what are the tipping points to just keep moving it forward and evolving? And to, and uh, and so I, I think you model that in a beautiful way. Oh, well, thank you, Fleet. I appreciate that and appreciate your great work and your great career. Uh, and if people are interested in finding out more about you, Fleet Mall, where would they look? Well, I think the first place would be to check out the book, which is at radicalresponsibilitybook.com. And then my own website, it's just fleetmall.com. And okay. if they're interested in the prison work, that's prisonmindfulnessinstitute.org. All right. Well, thank you again, Fleet Mall, for joining us on the Daily Evolver. And thank you, everybody, for watching. See you next time. <laughs>